Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine, and this is the Rattlecast, a special episode for Saturday, August 10th. We're going to bring you guys live to um, Newburyport, Massachusetts, where um, we have the Powwow River Poets talking about their friend David Berman. Um, and it's not the David Berman, the musician. Uh, this is David Berman, the formalist poet, who's a member of the Powwow River Poets Gathering. Um, if you don't know, the Powwow River Poets are a gathering of accomplished poets in New England, centered in Newburyport, Massachusetts, including members from as far as the Boston area and New Hampshire. Uh, members are widely published in journals and anthologies in their own collections and have won numerous awards for both original poetry and translations. The thrust of the group is toward formal prosody, and it is best known in that regard. But while many members employ rhyme, meter, and form, others write primarily or exclusively in free verse. And it's really one of the most prominent um, writers groups in the country, I think. I hear things all the time. It was founded by Rena Espayat. There are a bunch of really great members. We've published a whole bunch of the poets from the Powwow River Poets group. And um, in the winter issue, uh, which you can see on the screen now, um, we published a poem by, uh, two poems by David Berman, posthumously. And um, about that, let me just read the uh, note that they included with that. David Berman was a wonderful member of the Powwow River Poets, with several awards to his credit, a fine translator and scholar, a distinguished lawyer, and beloved friend whom we've lost to cancer. He studied with Robert Lowell and Archibald McLeish, worked with language the way a jeweler works with stone, and served as a kind of yardstick to the rest of us during the many years he graced our monthly workshop. Although he had published excellent work in three chapbooks and many anthologies, he left the bulk of his work unpublished, as his profession left him short of time. Several of us, A.M. Jester, Bruce Bennett, Rena Espayat, have acceded to his widow's desire to submit some of David's poems to the magazines we most enjoy reading and to which we submit our own work. Uh, these two from this winter issue number 62 uh, happen to be about David's relationship with his cat, but they transcend by miles the typical cat poem genre. So that was from issue number 62. And in the most recent issue, uh, Bruce Bennett published a poem dedicated to um, his friend David Berman, um, in this chapbook called First Reader. And um, it's a beautiful chapbook. I can get it on screen a little better for everybody. Um, but it's a beautiful chapbook about his relationship with David as you know, they were each other's first reader. And it's a beautiful book, not just about David Berman, but about friendship itself and um, really a special relationship that kind of makes me jealous for having that kind of um, friend. I kind of wish I had a Dave. David Berman in my life. Um, so now we're going to hand it over to uh, Alfred Nichol, Rena Espayat, Bruce Bennett, and A.M. Jester. And they're in Newburyport, Massachusetts, and they're going to be reading poems for you about, uh, by and about David Berman. Hi, my name is Alfred Nicole. I became a member of the Powwow River Poets, uh, I think, back in 2000. Um, and, and when I first joined, David was there. The first thing you have to say about David Berman is that his generosity, his generosity was enormous. And he became, his enthusiasm for other people's poems was every bit as, as um, his, other people's poems were as important to him as his own. Or he, at least he made us feel that way. So that's my relationship to David Berman. And it's a pretty, pretty, pretty important one. I'm Rena Espayat. I'm one of the founding members of the Powwow River Poets, which is a real privilege. 
And David has been around since, oh, before, before uh, time began. <laughs> and his, the thing that I love many things about him, but the thing that really stands out is his devotion to excellence, his devotion to the craft of poetry, not just to self-expression, which is shallow, spilling out of feelings, but the finding of a vessel that is worthy of what's going to be poured into it verbally. He, uh, he is something he was, and I still use the present tense. He was, for a long time, for many years, our literary conscience, so that even today, after he's gone, when somebody makes a mistake, we say, oh, we should ask David, we should channel David, because he was for us, and still is, uh, the high point of, of correctness, and not just correctness, but the best words in the best order. I'm Bruce Bennett. I'm not a Powwow River poet. I wish I were, but I live elsewhere, although I've been an honorary one for a while. Um, but I am a lifelong friend of David's. We met in the fall of uh, uh, 2000, I'm sorry, 1961. And from that time on, uh, he was the first reader of my poetry and I was the first reader of his, unless he showed it to the Powwow River poets first. Um, and so I will be introducing uh, him, him as a person that I knew for a long time and as my first reader. And I'm an emeritus professor at Wells College uh, in Aurora, New York. Hi, I'm Mike Jester. Uh, I'm a poet, translator, and critic. Um, I knew David for over 20 years as a powwow river poet um, and also as a neighbor. We live in the same town. Uh, we lived in the same time, about a, uh, about an hour south of Newburyport, where the Powwow River uh, poets um, meet. Um, I've also been uh, working with the people to my right as we've been informal literary executors um, for David. And we have good news um, in that regard. Um, in going through his voluminous papers, we found a book manuscript from about 10 years ago that we believe he only sent out once and uh, probably got discouraged. We don't know for sure. Um, but it's a constellation that we don't have to pick from <clears throat> all the marvelous poems that he wrote. We have some idea of something that he conceived of as a collection not that long ago. And um, it's being picked up by Abel Muse Press, uh, a great press which has been uh, very supportive of formless poets um, in this country, um, has published Rena's uh, most recent book um, and does a marvelous job with the, um, the art and the whole putting together um, of the book. So we're really thrilled that probably sometime late next year, there will be a David Berman book for all of you to race out, pre-order, and then order on a timely basis and give to friends for the holidays. <laughs> David also had three chapbooks, um, but as Mike said, <clears throat> Rena and Mike and I spent a lot of time going through literally thousands of poems, so we were very happy to find a manuscript that Dave, essentially David had already chosen. Uh, so I'll begin because I knew David since the fall of 1961, and he passed away in uh, June 2017, 
But as I said, we were lifelong friends, and also he and I were first readers of each other's poetry. And I wanted to give just a little bit of a background. Um, after David passed away, uh, almost immediately after, I wrote a sequence of poems uh, that was then published by the Wells College Press in a beautiful letterpress chapbook called First Reader. And it's 14 poems. Many of them are sonnets. David wrote a great many sonnets. And uh, I also wrote this uh, kind of statement to go on the college, the press's website. Uh, so I'll read part of my remarks that are in that statement. David was an integral part of my life since I first met him in Archibald MacLeish's English-esque creative writing course at Harvard in the fall of 1961. He was, at that time, a second-year law student at Harvard, and I was a first-year graduate student in the School of Arts and Sciences, beginning work on my PhD in English. To the best of my recollection, we began exchanging poems after McLeish's course, and we continued to do so from then on. He was always my first reader, often the only person who ever read many of my poems, and I am quite sure I will now never have another one. A day or so after David died, I wrote the following. And these are some thoughts about David and again, uh, excerpts from those. Here are some things that stood out for me about David. He read Latin for pleasure. <laughs> With regard to certain areas of knowledge, he was among the most intellectually curious people I have known. His appetite for information, including arcane information, was insatiable. He was an exquisite and prolific formal poet who wrote poetry all his life and was blessed to find his community and indeed his spiritual and artistic home among his fellow powwows. He was a most loyal and generous friend. And I'd like to read the last of the four poems in the opening sequence uh, to first reader, which this is also a sonnet. Having you was a privilege, a, a boon, the great good fortune reveled in by those who stumbled on a comrade late or soon, who'd know all one's allusions, one who chose to treat first reader as a sacred trust. Nothing was out of bounds, nothing was hidden. One wrote of deepest things because one must, in writing only. Nothing was forbidden. In talk, such things were never ever spoken as if they didn't exist. Yes, it was odd, but was a pact of sorts and never broken as if one made a covenant with God. You were my tactful, secret, distant brother. First reader, thanks. I shall not have another. Think it's, a, it's a tremendously moving poem. Thank you. Yes, Thank you. Yes, it is. And I, I think it gives you people who have not had the good fortune to have met David Berman, the kind of person he was to inspire such a poem. I never once heard David say a cruel or even a sarcastic thing or a cutting thing. 
when he had to criticize someone's work, because in our workshop we're very open with each other, he never said it in a way that sent people home thinking, oh, I've goofed, I've done something wrong. He managed to be diplomatic, but utterly truthful at the same time, because he understood the importance of not lying among poets, of, of telling people what you really, really think of what they've written, but in a way that focuses on the work and not on the person. You know, I have this little, little the short little epigraph of his, yeah. epigram of his, called Comprehension Test, and it'll give you some idea of how, how how much of a stickler he could be for writing with with clarity. Comprehension Test. No poet who has ever penned a verse that none could comprehend has ever thought the fault might be his own lack of lucidity. I'd actually like to add something uh, about him as a critic, because as my first reader, he would often sum up his opinion about a poem in just a few sentences, or maybe even just a few words. Um, and I wrote this about him as a critic. He was an exacting critic who took the vocation of critic very seriously, and who was therefore, as a critic, knowledgeable, sharp, and invariably just. He possessed and reveled in exhibiting an extraordinary, one could almost say Borgesian, memory, frequently dazzling others with instant recall of abstruse historical and other facts, dates, and of course, details of the law, which was one gift that made him a world-class lawyer. I mean, the lawyer-poet uh, combination, which I have to plead guilty to as well, um, it, it probably strikes a lot of people as unlikely, but he and I were not just lawyers, but both litigators. And training for trial law, a lot of the same skills that make you a good poet make you a good trial lawyer. It's paying careful attention to the language, to the nuances, and to the rhetoric of persuasion. And so I think there was a fair amount of continuity between David's professional life, where he was a very accomplished solar practitioner, he won a case in the U.S. Supreme Court, and the kinds of things that he would uh, write for his poetry and bring up to Newburyport on weekends. Actually, again, and then I'm going to step back if I could, because we're on a sofa. Uh, I found a poem among the thousands that we looked at that I loved, and Many times I've read poems at weddings, uh, children of friends or former students, and a poem I almost always read is Shakespeare's Sonnet 116, Let Me Not to the Marriage of True Minds. And I was thoroughly delighted to find David's kind of lawyerly take on this. This is a poem I would never read at anyone's <laughs> wedding. <laughs> it's called Despite What They Say at Weddings. Let me not to the separation of unhappy pairs admit impediments. Love that is merely duty is not love, as each hurt spouse or sweetheart comes to sense sooner or later. Make the parting short and not too bitter, even if not sweet. If you indeed must have a day in court, make it a quick one. Leave on dancing feet. Oh no, no tears. Lives shared in emptiness are daily funerals, 
before you reach the edge of doom, take time to reassess how close to it you mean to sail. The breach should come before the future is the past. Love bears no warranty that it will last. <laughs> You'll never hear that at a wedding. <laughs> no, you, it, it's no surprise to come across references to Shakespeare or to any classical author from antiquity to the very present. Uh, in a poem by 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 um, uh, by uh, David, because he had read everything and he had understood it, and he had added to it with his own wisdom and his own uh, learning, which was great. Uh, here's one in which he recites, which he um, he re relates to something else that is almost as well known as Shakespeare. It's called Unrecited Declaration, and it begins this way. We hold these truths until they drop, or we or both do. Then we shop for truths a bit more portable, more up-to-date, our hands too full already and not really strong. The stern demands of truths held long add to their weight, make them seem rough, still good but not quite good enough. And this was David talking about the passage of time and the change that time brings about in what we believe and don't believe, what we accept and what we don't accept. It's a very subtle poem. It's a poem about the unreliability of what we call fact or truth. And he, um, he manages to make it not only humorous, but profound. The thing about David, you also notice for for all of his learning, for for, for all of his um, eloquence, his poems tell it straight. Mm -hmm. The first time I was asked to introduce him at a reading, I think I made everyone scratch their heads because I I made the comparison between him and Hank Williams. Now, from outward appearances, could there be two people? I'm going to scratch my head. I'm going to hear this. <laughs> because, I mean, so one of them's a honky-tonk uh, guy in a cowboy hat, right? And then, and then David, he's got a bow tie on, and he's got this kind of Boston Brahmin accent. We don't know where he got it. <laughs> but they both wrote with absolute clarity about things that, that everyone could relate to because they happen in the human heart. And there are all things that people kind of don't say. I mean, the poem that you just read, even though it's taking off on Shakespeare, right? that's talking, you're, you're, you're in Hank Williams' town when, mm -hmm. when, you're, when, you're, when you're talking about Direct those kind of things. Yeah. I, I'd like to read, oh, and this is the other thing is, to talk about the kind of things that, well, the I in his poems is not always um, seen in the best light. I, I love that. Who, who needs who needs poems that are always full of the positive emotions? He was he was one to address the negative emotions. So here's one called "After the Trip." Suppose it had been just the two of us alone in that compartment on the train from Nimes to Nice. Would you have made a fuss if I had made a pass? It was too plain. 
The others must have noticed how we eyed each other, comme pour faire l'amour. Alas, our hands behaved themselves. I almost sighed, allons, but fearing to make an ass or worse ass of myself. Besides, where could we two have been together and alone? The train was packed, and that is how things stood the whole trip through. You used the telephone once in Lagar. I queued for a taxi. Your flesh at once turned into fantasy. He talks about the things you don't really say about. Lena mentioned Shakespeare, another uh, writer that he uh, paid a lot of attention to was Dante. And uh, I was, this is an early poem of his, but I was delighted to come across it again. Uh, And we've sort of hinted at David's sense of humor, kind of wry, often, sometimes not. Sometimes he would when he was amused, he would break into laughter, and then he couldn't stop himself. <laughs> he giggled. Uh, he giggled. He, right giggled. he almost shrieked at times with yes. laughter. Uh, and some of that's in the poems. It's not in this poem, but you can sense what's behind this poem. So the doomed young lovers, uh, Francesca and Paolo, in the Divine Comedy, are the subject of much high literature. And here's David's a junior high school version slightly x-rayed. He had her when they both were in eighth grade. It was an accident of sorts, the night before a test that each had been afraid of flunking. They were studying. The light between them narrowed till it disappeared. Her folks were out. Her bedroom door was closed, propelled by heedless hormones, though they feared conception, they undressed and fast disposed of hollow inhibitions. He withdrew seconds before his climax, so he said, for though he promised secrecy, she knew, or should have known, no secrets stay in bed. And yes, there was a consequence in store, not studying together anymore. And more wicked David Berman. He had a wicked streak. He did have a wicked streak. He had a wicked streak, and he was somehow subversive, although he was a perfect gentleman. I never saw him as anything but a perfect gentleman. And yet, somehow, in the poetry, something creeps in that that sort of wants to say, no, no, not like that, this way. Mm -hmm. For all of that, you know, his, I would say, my guess is that David Furman's favorite writers were the writers of the Bible, mm-hmm. the, the prophets of the Old Testament and St. Paul of all people in the, in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he used, and that's another, that's another actual parallel with, with Hank Williams because Hank Williams had that, that relationship with, um, with, with scripture. And they, and they both had, a, had used it so very well. Hank Williams used it to, he saw, he saw the Bible as the book of the poor. And David saw that book as endless, endless inspiration. And he, and he would identify with, with people in the Bible and, um, and make great poems of it. I think you have one, Michael. The, yeah. The, the, yeah. yeah and, and I think, you know, David's attitude toward 
the Bible and religion was very split. I think intellectually he was an atheist, but in his heart he didn't want to believe that and didn't fully believe that. So a lot of his poems about the Bible reflect that type of um, ambivalence. And, and Mike, we did find religious poems that really kind of play with the idea of not only the possibility of yep. God, but... And, and and this is one of them, and it's particularly appropriate, you know, because he's talking about uh, ultimately his own mortality, which he wrestled with a lot, particularly in his later years. So this is called A Song for Lazarus. My soul, where have you been these many days? My eyes were closed in dreamless sleep. I woke, and all the sleepy town arose and spoke of wonder, till the air was set ablaze with flaming talk and change. The skeptic prays while the devout repeatedly invoke odd precedents. The ordinary folk would like to ask, I see it in their gaze, what happened? But they fear to learn and so walk past me blindly. Not, there's, that, not that there's much to tell, and what there is is negative. No trumpet sounded, no lights came aglow. My soul returned, and I, unfit to touch, decayed, stood up. Because my friend said, live. Now that's a poem without any irony in it, I think. <laughs> that's a genuinely religious poem, and it's a poem that says, I may not be able to believe, but oh, how I would love to. I, and part of the comments that I was reading from before that I left out, he knew the Bible, both Old and New Testament, practically by heart and often mauled, discoursed on, and wrote about biblical themes. If I had a question, any question at all, relating to religion or the Bible, I knew I could rely on David to answer it, and in considerable and quite specific <laughs> detail. That used to be a problem at our workshops sometimes. But even, but even in this, what I think is ultimately a very hopeful poem, one of his more religious ones, there is that, that nagging doubt as well, because you still have the line, when Lazarus is describing heaven, no trumpet sounded, no lights came aglow. So this is a, yeah. this is a man who crossed over into the afterlife and didn't get what one would expect to see of heaven. And so you know this is this is the kind of uh, theological issue that David wrestled with a lot. And this is an example of how the craft kicks in because he uses the word negative and then he goes on to say no. Is it two or three times? He uh, illustrates yes. the negative in the lines that follow. Yep. He uses language uh, the way a jeweler uses the little teeny tools that work on, on jewelry. He, uh, he somehow, it was not fussiness, because fussiness implies shallow, shallow feelings and shallow purposes. He, he is precise, because what he's touching with his language is so important to him. I would, I would like yeah. to read this one called For Mr. First, because we were talking about religion and right and wrong, and here he, he deals with, with sin, with the, with the exciting guy in school who is the first one to do all the dangerous and terrible things and get you into sin. And here's his, uh, his view of that. For Mr. First. The first into the ocean or pool, prince of the beach. While we put on our lotion, you swam beyond our reach. The first one to get drunk, the first one to get laid. You were the high school hunk we envied. 
when you made your folks buy you a car while we still learned to drive, you seemed to us by far the luckiest kid alive. The first into TM and first to call it bunk. You joined AA, but then felt better as a drunk. Now first to meet the dragon who will devour us all. You were, we hope, as arrogant with him and walked as tall the night he came to get you as ever you had been when starry-eyed we let you steer us into sin. <laughs> and there's a poem that, that combines the thought of sin, rather important, the thought of death, really important, and yet humor, humor and lightness of heart, and somehow the courage to deal with these, these things that we're afraid of. And it's a genuine tribute to someone who the reader might question deserves the tribute, but the poet. That's a genuine tribute to this guy. Mm -hmm. He might be a cat, but he's, he, he's, he looked up to him as a, as a, young, as a, as a young student, and he's, it's not all lost in this, in this tribute. No, it's not. It's not. Because you do have to take risks in life. And the risks sometimes lead you into terrible places. But as a poet, he knew that the risks were part of what we do. Whether it's with language or with ideas or with anything at all, risks are always dangerous but always necessary. And that's saying something for someone who was so much a formalist poet. Yes, that's right. I, has, has he ever written, did he ever write a, a, a free verse poem? You yes, know. yes. Uh, not very many. Right. No, very not few. very many, and uh, I don't think I brought it with me, but I found one poem that I showed Rena last night that was, I think, the length of a sonnet, uh, sort of blank verse, but it was almost a totally different voice. Oh, and I don't remember what I wrote to David about it, but um, he did experiment, and he, he wrote a lot of uh, kind of uh, nursery rhyme comic poems. He, he did everything in form. Um, I think he tried every kind of form. He was most comfortable in form, uh, but I've seen short stories of his. He did write some prose. And, I, I, you know, at times I do wish he had branched off because what I saw in those different forms, he might have really explored. And he certainly did. He had no reservations about subject matter. I mean, oh, I, knew him, I knew him most of my life, and I, he could shock me still with yes. things. And he also had a subtlety that... Um, that defied those of us who are too cowardly to talk about those things we're afraid of. Now, the, this is a poem about unfulfilled ambition, unfulfilled wishes for the self. And a man who had accomplished so much, uh, and a famous lawyer and a successful lawyer, successful man in every sense, and yet here is this iffy poem called The Tour of the Interior, in which he seems to find himself lacking on so many vague but but obvious things, obvious that he believed in them, whether they were true or not, but he's picking on himself here. Hmm. A Tour of the Interior. This is the train I never took. This is my first unwritten book. This is the sweetheart I never kissed. These keys I lost but never missed. This is the apple I never tasted. This is the scrapbook I never pasted. This is the poem I never wrote whose lines professors 
never quote. This is the coin I never tossed. This is the river I never crossed. These are the stairs I never climbed. These are the rhymes I never rhymed. This is the living I worked to make. This is the train I meant to take. And there is um, an almost bitter, but not quite, but almost bitter look backward at a life that the rest of us would have been very glad to have. And that has that nursery rhyme quality. And it has that nursery rhyme quality. It has an innocence to the language that makes us read it twice mm -hmm. to see if we believe what he's really saying. You know, that tone of, you called it almost bitter, it, this, it's in a lot of his poems. And you, you would think, I think in some people that, that um, almost bitterness could be coupled with an envy of, of other people's success in the arts, because that's really what he wanted success for. And, but he, he was the farthest thing from that. He was always able to appreciate. Was there ever such an appreciator of the arts as, as, as David? Music, especially. He, oh, my goodness. I mean, I'd like to read this one about that, about that particular thing, how he, he, he lets on that, um, he lets on that Odysseus hated the sound of, um, of the flute. But this is really, this is, this is David, this is David talking to you. This is the way David could appreciate wine, he could appreciate music, he could appreciate other people's poems. Mm -hmm. Not many poems, poets as great as David Berman appreciate other people's poems as much as David You mean Berman. poets are not running toward each other to <laughs> congratulate each other? They I'm really shocked. are not. And he really literally would run toward you. He would literally run toward you in a crowd to congratulate you. Usually if you see them running toward you, you're afraid. <laughs> so here's one called The Effect of Hearing the Sublime. Odysseus, who heard the sirens sing, was not enraptured by another thing he heard from human lips, fools muttering, and golden sounds that proved the flutist's skill, which other men said gave their hearts a thrill. To him, were equally dislikable. He knew that he would never hear again the sounds he would have died for had his men been able to hear what he said to them, which was, steer toward the music, though it means we shall not land upon familiar scenes, nor want to, once this music intervenes. We'd go toward the music, though it meant losing our homes and our, and our, our very beings. Yes, that's true. And he meant music both metaphorically and literally. The music of poetry, which, and his poems are full of music, but also music, music by instruments and by voices, because he was a lover of the arts. And what was that organization that he was so active well, the with? Bar. Yeah, um, the Cantatas. The Cantatas. The Cantatas, yes. He was very, very active with them, and, and he, he absolutely loved them. He could name what was being played and oh, who yes. composed yeah. it and when. Yeah. Um, we haven't mentioned his unreserved love for cats. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's so true. And I believe We that, have a poem here. Would you like to read that one? Uh, I have another one with oh, cats, so somebody could read that one if you want. Um, well, we must honor the cats. No one could love cats. Well, Rattle is, I believe going to be publishing either one or two yes, poems yes. about David's poems about cats. Um, 
Well, there there is one called the rational animal. <laughs> the cat stares wistfully at birds that flap and chirp outside his window. Sternly, we inform him we do not eat bird. What crap, he answers sullenly. Do I not see chicken and duck and pheasant on your table? And are you devouring those? And you devouring those with unfeigned zest? Since he has in a trice despoiled our fable, we say, but these are guests. We don't eat guests. <laughs> I think he loved his cats the way he loved his family. He lost several, and every loss of one of his pets oh, was... Many poems. Uh, oh, my. It was, it was a loss of, of, a, of a relative and a beloved one. Here's one called Hobo. I think his most beloved cat of all. And uh, it's, it's un, it has a, a subtitle, Obituary, 25th February 2006, for Hobo. The vet said it was cruel to force more life on you in kidney failure. We agreed. You had lived 20 years. You're first in strife that feral cats endure, the rest in need of nothing. Friends of ours would often note how fortunate you were but we would smile. Your quick kiss, your soft purr, your silken coat enriched us beyond words. And you had style and showed it when you leapt on laps or ate in dainty mouthfuls. Skein of mottled gray and white, we could not bear to make you wait in pain for death to come to you the way it was approaching. But you will be missed each night not with us, to be stroked and kissed. I actually have a poem in the uh, rattle called Comfort that combines the love of music and cats. Uh, Comforts for David Berman, 1934-2017. You used to write about the snow, how you would sit before a fire relishing Bach, Distilled desire attended you, nowhere to go, nothing to do. Stroke that your poem since you died. I know the tale they had to tell. You knew what waited all too well. That snow is piling up outside. You knew that soon enough you'd go, but you rejoiced in Bach, the fire, the cat. Your poems proclaimed desire attained. Your poems defy the snow. So those were the two things <laughs> that gave him great comfort. Yes. That love of cats was so genuine. I, I mean, here's a man, I mean, an accomplished lawyer who argued before the, the Supreme Court. And then we had a little reading here, a new report. And it was too, it had not been long enough since one of his cats, he got up in front of the mic and he just, he just broke down. He couldn't he even cried. read couldn't even do it. He cried, yes. But you know, it was not just cats. He had the same feeling for children. Mm -hmm. The children that enriched his life, the, the, the children and grandchildren of his wife, Margaret, whom he adored with good reason, uh, became his children immediately. And he took them on wonderful trips and he read to them and he treated them not just as a father, but as a grandfather. He, uh, those were the most fortunate children I have ever seen, and they treated him accordingly, and they gave him back what he deserved in kind. 
And I think this is this is one of the things that we didn't really appreciate about David until we started going through his papers and reading his earlier work because you know when I first met David he was probably in his mid to late 50s and I reacted I think the same way most people did I mean he seemed very polished he seemed very together he seemed very happy um, and he had the, the Boston Brahmin accent and I thought you know he he grew up with some privilege around here and he didn't. He didn't. You know, he he willed what he wanted to be in lots of ways. And he grew up in Florida. He was an orphan. He had a tough life. He had some early romantic disappointments. And, you know, it, 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 there was a lot of, it was a, there were some big holes in his life. And he, I think he just willed uh, a path forward to fill those holes. So the pets and the family um, and everything that um, he acquired, I mean, those were incredibly important, I think, for him because I think it filled those voids from earliest life. And, and he didn't talk about that hard really at all. I mean, I think we were all, we all spent a lot of time talking about the fact that he didn't talk about that, that this was this whole side of him that we didn't know. He wasn't actually an orphan. His mother lived to be, till he was even fairly old. He, he was in an orphanage. Yeah, right, there was exactly. a family head brother. That's right. That's and, right. and I knew him most of our lives, and I didn't know that until the memorial yes. service. Yeah. Yes, he was very reserved. He liked his private life private, and whatever he wanted to make public of it went into the poetry, but sideways. Right. You know, it was like right. Emily Dickinson. Right. Uh, and and I, I think that, to a great extent, Margaret finished his life right. She corrected his life mm -hmm. by giving him the kind of um, the kind of uh, peace and, and love and happy. harmony yes, exactly. that he had uh, that he had perhaps not had before, mm -hmm. and he deserved it. He did. Yes, he did. I'd like to I'd like to read one called "And the Others." Some find the light in literature, others in fine art. And some persist in being sure the light shines in the heart. Some find the light in alcohol, some in the sexual spark. Some never find the light at all and make do with the dark. And one might guess that these would be a gloomy lot indeed. But no, the light they never see, they think they do not need. That's quite a poem. Isn't that a marvelous poem? Toward the very end of his life, uh, I talked to David on the phone. I didn't see him as often as I would have liked to. And my wife and I actually drove while he was very ill at the end and we weren't able to see him. Um, but I remember one of the last phone calls I got from him and he was in a very good mood and we talked for a long time, but he was mostly talking. And after he died, I wrote this poem because I remembered it. It's called First, I'm sorry, Final Call. Your voice was cheerful. You were on a roll, reciting favorite poems you knew by heart. Malay, McLeish, Lowell, Robinson, each whole delivered flawlessly. I played the part I often did of listener. I knew this time was different though. This was an act of courage, of defiance. This time you were proving you could do it still, a fact by no means certain. As I held the phone, 
I thought, I must remember this. My friend was sharing something he and he alone could take such pride in, knowing that the end was near. I listened and I did my best to reassure him he had aced the test. See, what we're doing, I mean, what we're doing here is talking about a void. Yes, that's right. That's right. A void that he filled with so many skills and so many gifts. Uh, well, you, 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 you knew him as, as a professional, as a friend. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, he... Um... I mean, he was a remarkable guy, and it, what I'm one of the things I regret now is, you know, I figured out so much more about him in hindsight. I would have loved <laughs> to have had the, the conversation. You wouldn't with have him. answered those questions. <laughs> maybe not, but you know, I've imagined some of those conversations. I've imagined that that maybe if I snuck up on him obliquely, <laughs> yeah, you know, I could, because you're right. If I had gone at him frontally, yeah, you know, uh, you know, like a talk show or something, it wouldn't wouldn't have worked. Yeah, but. Yeah, but yeah. Um, but, you know, but something from in the He filled that void with so many interests. For example, he was the perfect host. If you went to his no, house, you us. never wanted to leave. He was, a, he was a gourmet cook to begin with. And every, every little lunch he served was a major meal. And it was done with such grace and such charm. And, and then he was, of course, as we mentioned, a lover of music. He sang. Uh, he knew the Bible. He knew he knew just about everything worth reading that because he had read it, and he had. You've heard by now about his accent, how mm. he had this this Oxford accent. He would rhyme uh, a, a rain and a gain and pain and a gain. <laughs> yeah. And here's one that I wrote for him after we lost him, and it, it's called "Which of the Arts You Mastered." Which of the arts you mastered? through a life rich in accomplishments, defines you best. The lawyer's art, that talent you possess for finding order where disorders rife in human judgment, or your scholar's way with words, those of Lucretius or St. Paul or ours you studied. You enrich them all. Or your musician's gift for making play out of the labor of confronting pain. Wit, poet, verbal jeweler, and much more, or analogist and gourmet chef whose door opened with joy, who said, come soon again, like that, to friends who mourn you, as we should. Come soon again, indeed. We wish you could. See, when I said a moment ago that we're talking, uh, uh, we're talking about a void, uh, it's the void that we're we've gathered here to talk about is our void. Yeah. I'm going to read my own, um, my, as we're winding down this program now, I'm, I'm going to um, read my own tribute to, to David Berman. It's called The Workshop, because most of us met David Berman through the Powwow River Workshop. The Workshop for David Berman. Not every second Saturday, for sometimes you'd be traveling abroad or work kept you away. But 10 months out of 12, you'd bring a bullseye central metaphor, already flawless, to present for our critique, having made sure to say precisely what you meant. How easily we might misread your absence here today, at court, 
with one more major case to plead. At anchor in a foreign port, where you've uncorked a vintage wine, you would have joined us otherwise. We'd quibble with your closing line, but this is one you won't revise. I think we've all felt the need to express ourselves um, after he left us. And um, for me, it was sort of daunting. Um, and um, what a, well, part of what I wanted to do is he had this wonderful laugh when you did something a little cheeky that then would try to suppress and then it would get louder and louder and louder. So I wanted him at least afterward, I envisioned him at least afterwards getting that laugh because the mind tried to do something outrageous as a tribute to his love of form. I, I did a, a, a mashup of really four different types of form. So this is a litany, this is an elegy, this is a sonnet, and it's written in Anglo-Saxon alliterative meter. And, and I think the poem is, is really quite serious. It doesn't try to make light of what happened, but I just, I, part of what I was doing as I went through this is, is thinking about how much he would enjoy reading it and figuring it out, you know, after the fact. So this is, um, uh, I helps, um, scatter, uh, David's ashes in our hometown. So this is called after scattering David Berman's ashes. Worker of words, maker of meter, lover of lines and mercy and law, reconciler of rhythms and rules, defender of faith, doubter of God, wanderer once in a riven south, Brahmin by will, not wealth, wealth or birth, friend and counselor, a force in court, champion of clarity, classics and charity, Late in life, a braver of love, a father adopted by daughters and sons, apologist for the joy of his puns, twinkler of eyes near wine or wit, scavenger of insight in poetry and prose, a heart that would rise when an aria rose. So, I, Bruce, I think that we should give the last word to you. Well. Yeah. Uh, actually, in First Reader, there are a number of poems that talk of the one on the facing page, the one I'm going to read, is called Privacy. Um, a number of the poems are questions or things, as we've said, that we did not know about him, even though we knew him. And he held nothing back from us as friends, except from what he held back from everybody. It's a kind of essential mystery of, of whatever inner being we all have. Um, and I was very moved at the wonderful memorial service for him, uh, which was full of friends and family. Um, and this poem came after that, and it's close to the end of First Reader. It's called Eulogy. Though kind words have been spoken, and all are just and true, your code has not been broken. They don't add up to you. That access was forbidden. Impervious to fact, your essence still lies hidden, its mystery intact. In wonder and in sorrow, whatever we infer, tomorrow and tomorrow, you will be what you were. Tomorrow and tomorrow, 
will cherish him we knew, acknowledging with sorrow he was, yet was not you. Well, I think that's a great way to close this. I, 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 we'd like to thank you, Tim, for inviting us to do yes. this. Um, thank you very much for this. Yeah, thank you so much for, for having this. It was a beautiful Thanks. tribute to David and really exactly what we hoped for with this radio uh, podcast, which was just people sitting around celebrating poetry and poets they love. And that was a really beautiful just episode. So thank you so much for joining us from Newburyport, Massachusetts. Um, we really appreciate it. Take care. Thanks so much. Okay, thank you. Uh, one last time, I wanted to let everybody know that this book, First Reader, which we originally planned on just being a show about First Reader, but then we decided to bring everybody in and all the David's friends, and it was a really beautiful tribute. But First Reader by Bruce Bennett is available from um, Vander Cook Proofing Press. It's a limited edition chapbook. Uh, I have, I have uh, edition number 11. And um, so there are 100 copies of this available. Uh, there's a link in the show notes if anybody would like to pick it up. And also, um, when uh, David Berman's book comes out, we'll be sure to let you know on this show and elsewhere on Rattle's social media and stuff. Make sure that you follow us on uh, Rattle's Facebook page, uh, Facebook at Rattle Magazine. Uh, be sure to like this stream and subscribe to this channel so you get to see more content like this if you enjoy it. It's a lot of fun to do, and we're going to keep doing this at least every Tuesday. We might have some some special episodes now and then besides for that. Uh, this week coming up, we have... On Tuesday, we're going to have Elizabeth S. Wolf plus an open mic again for Rattlecast number 4. So she'll be joining us Tuesday, uh, August 13th at 9 p.m., and we also have an open mic again for that show, so if you want, you can call in on Skype and talk to us that way. Or you can um, uh, pre-record the stuff now. If you go to rattle.com slash rattlecast, I'll put the link um, in the comments or something too, you can pre-record a poem and submit it to us ahead of time so that uh, if, if you're, you know, a lot of people are worried about using Skype, although it's really easy and really fun to do and to be here live, but a lot of people are worried about it or can't make it live and want to participate still. So that's one way to do it. Uh, that'll be next week, or actually this coming week, Tuesday, August 13th. That's it for today. Hope you have a great Saturday, great rest of your weekend, and we will see you later. <laughs>